This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, it's the end of summer. What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is the end of summer and we're back. The summer reading series is over. We're back to regular podcasting and it's great to be back. It is great to be back. I wish that I could say that Washington had taken a pause while we were doing our book series and had had a sudden stroke of good sense. But the subject of our podcast is, as usual, bad sense on the part of the Biden administration and certain others on the question of Ukraine. Exactly. So the counteroffensive is underway in Ukraine. And we have the Biden administration, which is simultaneously handcuffing the Ukrainians in their ability to fight the counteroffensive while chirping at them from the sidelines about how they're not doing it well enough. And so we decided to bring you the smartest military and strategic expert we know, General Jack Keane, to talk about that. He had a great piece in the Wall Street Journal, which was talking about two things. One, that the, you know, criticizing the Pentagon and, and this, what I think you think, Danny, is a core coordinated campaign from the Biden administration to to sort of, you know, talk down the Ukrainians. That's a nice way of putting it. But at the same time, also saying that the military advice our generals are giving the Ukrainians is really bad military advice and that the Ukrainians actually have it right in terms of the strategy they're pursuing. And so they're giving bad advice. They're handcuffing them by not providing them the equipment they need to prevail. And then they're going to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and just pissing all over them. It's, it's you know, it, it's just mind-boggling. Well, I've got to be honest with you, Mark. I, you know, we saw, we saw this campaign. I saw the articles. You saw the articles. Everybody saw the articles, especially the Ukrainians. And, and it, it was clear it was a coordinated campaign. They all came out just a couple of days after the middle of August. They all were sourced to, you know, senior military officials. And it was the Biden administration poo-pooing all over the Ukrainian strategy. Now, I think there are reasonable people who disagree about military strategies. That's always the case. But why they chose to conduct this campaign in public is inexplicable to me. What do you think the reason well, is? They well, first of all, they did the same thing in the NATO summit, right? So all of the NATO allies wanted to have a strong statement, except for Germany and the Biden administration, wanted to have a strong statement saying that the Ukrainians would be admitted into NATO once the war was over. And, and obviously nobody wants to admit them while the fighting is underway because that would be a declaration of war in Russia. So no one was talking about that. And Zelensky cr rightly criticized the statement that came out. And all of a sudden, there are these other articles about how Biden almost, the Biden administration almost pulled back that language because they were so offended by Zelensky's lack of gratitude. You know, what? First of all, let's say you feel that way. Why would you tell that to a reporter? It's not the first time this has happened. But here's the thing. I th I'll tell you why I think they're doing it is because they don't want to get blamed. 
So, you know, they have handcuffed the Ukrainians. I mean, imagine what the Ukrainians are trying to do. And Jack will go into this in some detail. And what I love about Jack is how he can explain complicated military concepts in such an easy way for, for you know, dumb people like you and me to understand it, right? But the Russians are firing at the Ukrainians out of range of the artillery that they have because we haven't given them long-range artillery. They're conducting a counteroffensive without air power, which no Western military would ever do. We haven't delivered them tanks that we promised them. We're not giving them the attackums, the long-range artillery that they need. We're not giving them the breaching equipment they need to get over the minefields. We're doing this while there are hundreds of tanks sitting in storage that we could give them. And also, we held back the weapons so long that the Ukrainians delayed the counteroffensive, which gave the Russians time to completely mine the front lines. And so it's our fault that they're struggling the way they are. It's the, you know, it's the Biden administration's fault that they're struggling. And so they don't want to get blamed. So what the, what's the answer? You say, well, the Ukrainians have a bad strategy and they're not fighting well. And they, by the way, they did the same thing during the Afghan withdrawal. Remember when they when the Biden said how the Afghans weren't fighting hard enough for their country? It's like, I'm sorry, we withdrew all their air power, we withdrew their mission planning, we withdrew everything for them in a, without any warning, and then they collapse and we say, oh, well, it's their fault for not fighting hard enough. It's like never Biden's fault for anything, you know? That's, so that's what they're doing. They're pissing over the, on the Ukrainians to, to deflect blame from themselves because they're incompetent. Well, you know, that that's a lifetime of habit for Joe Biden, so no surprise. So I want to deflect for a minute what I think will be the, the counter-argument that was made at the time of Afghanistan. I think that's a very apt simile. Thank so you. what what our – you actually said two really good things. I'm going to get to the second oh good God, thing in a minute. Danny, uh, I know. You, well, you know summer you, has been good to you. You've become back generous and, and kind and thoughtful. Where Where is the Danny I love? Yeah, well, don't, don't worry, I'm still here. Uh, but, don't worry, we'll get over it soon, right? Exactly. So what what I think opponents of, of our presence in it or our support for Ukraine or on both the left and the right or supporters of Russia on both the left and the right will say is, look, you know, the Ukrainians, if they can't win on their own, if they really need Joe Biden to win, you know, should they really be fighting at all? And I think the answer to this is is a really, really important one that we don't talk about enough. You know, we don't want the Ukrainians to win. You know, I support Ukraine, but we don't want, in the most cynical sense, we do not want Ukraine to win because we love Zelensky. Or because he's our modern-day pope, to use the expression of one loathsome, loathsome Republican. We don't want him to win because we even have sympathy for the Ukrainian people in the face of this onslaught. We want Ukraine to win because we want Russia to lose. And I think that argument has not been made strongly enough, articulated strongly enough. And I think we need to be more blunt in labeling people who want to shortchange the Ukrainians on the kind of support they need, right? Whether it's this mine clearing or it's the long range attack or it's the F-16s that we need to hurry up and give them. When any of these things, we need to label them supporters of Putin because de facto that is what they are. Okay, now we'll get into our disagreements. There's chirping from the sidelines from people who don't want that on the outside, who don't want to support the Ukrainians, and that's a whole different argument. 
right now, they're, they're not the ones hamstringing the Ukrainian counteroffensive. It's the Biden administration that's hamstringing the Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Biden administration are the ones not giving them attackums. The Biden administration is the one not Again, giving them Mark, I think the Mark, la- I think the label applies to everybody. Okay, whether fair, it's fair enough. I think it applies to the Biden administration as well. And this is the problem that we face and one of the reasons why support on the right is is weakening to some extent is because people don't see a strategy for victory. We have a strategy to help the Ukrainians not lose. We don't have a strategy for them to win. If we have to go back to the politics, we had long talks about this in 2016 about Trump's foreign policy and why Jacksonian America and why people rallied to him. And he actually didn't articulate isolationism. His campaign mantra in 2016 was, I'm sick of losing. Americans are sick of losing. When Biden goes out all the time and says, as long as it takes, that is counterproductive because look at people look at that and say, it's taking too long. And we don't have a strategy to actually prevail. Americans will rally around it if you make the case that, one, it's in our interest, and two, we have a strategy to actually succeed. Then you can start winning support on a broad base from Republicans, from Democrats, from conservatives, from liberals, whatever. When you have an administration that not only doesn't have a strategy to win, but is hamstringing the Ukrainians, and then their mantra is, as long as it takes, that is a recipe for losing public support, failing on the battlefield, failing in the public relations battle here at home as well. So let's talk for a second about facts on the ground, which is also important, because in addition to what Jack Keane called chirping in his article in the Wall Street Journal, Jack was more than genteel, I think, in the use of that word. Somebody else in a different article in the Wall Street Journal called it kibitzing. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is actually undermining the Ukrainians, as you rightly say. But the facts on the ground are also exactly the reverse of what these generals were suggesting, of what the Biden administration was suggesting. So even there, it was the kind of disingenuous, dishonest observation that, you know, that that has been at the center of so much of what the Biden administration has done, because actually the Ukrainians aren't losing. I wanted I want to echo something that you say in the interview that I had not paid as close attention to as I should have. You know, a lot of our listeners you a lot should of be our paying scholars, more close attention to what I say. And then you'd be yes. Like, well, I guess they yeah. they all should. Indeed, we have so much to learn at at your knees, Mark. But that aside, what you said was that the Russian defenses look like World War One. And if anybody remembers what the nature of those battles looked like, it was fixed lines and endless, endless trench warfare. It was minefields and tank trenches, and it was the kind of strategy that ended up not working at all for for defenses in, in the Second World War. But the Russians have gone back to this, and it tells you an enormous amount about the Russians that this is what they need to win, they think right? That this is how they've dug in. They've gone back to the strategies used between 1914 and 1918 to defend the land that they are holding. And even with those strategies, they're losing. They are now losing territory. I I saw an article this morning in the paper suggesting that, in fact, the Ukrainians are on the verge of breaking Russian supply lines, which would be devastating, especially as we creep towards winter. So, you know, even there, 
Yes, it was dishonorable. Yes, it was bad behavior on the part of all of these chirpers, these kibitzers. But on top of everything, they were wrong. The Russians are, in fact, in much worse shape than anyone wants to admit. Well, here's the thing, as Jack points out, that they they were wrong on a lot of things. They were wrong that Kiev would fall. <laughs> they were wrong that the Ukrainians couldn't defend their country and turn back the Russian offensive. They were wrong in their estimation of the Russian military's capability to roll into the Ukrainian capital and take the country in a matter of days. They've been wrong overall. And now they're wrong because they were telling the Ukrainians, like, you got to focus on one point. And instead of having multiple axes in the battle, and as Jack points out, that's bad military advice. You actually want them to be diverting weapons to Bakhmut while you're attacking elsewhere because you want them to not be able to concentrate their weaponry in defense of one place. And so the Ukrainians are actually outperforming expectations, outperforming the capabilities in their hands. And they're actually doing this very, very difficult you know, mind clearing by hand and like that because we're not giving them, we have, you know, what the difference between now and World War One, when, when you had trench warfare and minefields is that we actually have advanced mind clearing technology that we could give them. And we have the technology that we could give them, like the attackums, the long range artillery that would allow the Russians to not be able to fire on them while they're doing this. And instead, we're forcing the Ukrainians to clear mines by hand while under fire from from out of range of their artillery by the Russians. And they're still doing it. And by the way, on the attackums, one of the things I saw in the press the other day is that we're saying the reason we can't give them attackums is because we don't have enough of them for ourselves. We haven't asked the producers of the attackums to increase production. So we're not making more. But we're saying we don't have enough. I mean, it's just the the level of incompetence on our side in terms of supporting the Ukrainians and the fact that they're succeeding as well as they are despite all of that is, is remarkable. And for God's sakes, could we get a president who's willing to, like, actually win? <laughs> well, that, that, that wouldn't be any of the Republicans in the lead that we saw, only Nikki Haley and, and, and Mike Pence. But we'll talk about that afterwards. So yeah. I want to make one, one final quick point to people before we turn to the person who we keep. Someone who knows what they're talking head. about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I, Mark, I think it's even worse than what you describe what? in the sense that, yes, we're not giving them the weaponry. We are not trying to backfill in terms of production. We're not trying to deepen our industrial base to, to cover up for the unbelievable problems that we've identified. We had that great podcast on that. But on top of that, the administration is refusing to ask Congress for money in anything other than quarter-year increments. I don't know what makes them think that this is a good strategy. We're with you for as long as it takes. Oh, but we can only fund you for three months. After that, we're not sure what's going to happen. This is insanity, and it's not the way that we conduct any other business. I don't understand, and I think Congress ought to stand up for them and make an appropriation for the whole year. Anyway, that's a, that's my final point on the subject. Everybody knows our guest. He's a repeat guest with us and a really good friend to both me and to Mark. General Jack Keane is a retired four-star general. He's the chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and you all know the Institute for the Study of War because their maps are the maps that you see Everywhere. I was reading a BBC article. Nope. Institute for the Study of War. I was looking on Fox News. Nope. Institute for the Study of War. Everywhere. And he is the chairman and one of the leaders of their fine, fine work. He's also a Fox News strategic analyst. He's also a member of the Defense Policy Board. And I hope he's using that platform along with 
former defense secretaries who are on that board to tell the Secretary of Defense, A, that they ought to stop kibitzing, chirping, and B, that they ought to step up a little bit more aggressively in defense of the Ukrainians. Anyway, here's our interview. Well, Jack, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, delighted to be here, as always. Well, so, you know, the summer is over. The spring counteroffensive in Ukraine is underway. And there's a lot of chirping from the sidelines. And here in the U.S., leaks to the press saying the Ukrainians aren't fighting right. They're not doing as well as they ought to. They're not going to succeed as much as they hope. What's going on? Give us your assessment of the counteroffensive and the chirping. Yeah. Well, first of all, the counteroffensive, given there, we're up against a Russian defense in depth. And by that, I mean comprehensive defensive defensive positions that have significant obstacles that consist of minefields, tank trenches, in other words, a, a, a very large ditch dug into the ground that you can't drive across without putting a, a bridge there or filling the dirt in, in that ditch, followed by what they refer to as dragon teeth, which are cement pyramids anywhere from three, four, five feet high laid out in multiple rows, trenches behind those, and all of that covered by direct fire, you know, from assault weapons, machine guns, and then also artillery, massive artillery, as a matter of fact. And then they have the capability to bring up attack helicopters, the KA-52, relatively sophisticated attack helicopter that can fire out to five miles, an anti-tank missile, which is they're shooting from firing lines beyond the range of the shoulder-fired air defense weapons that we have given the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians have virtually no air support. So that is what they're up against. No one in the United States military today wearing a uniform has ever faced what I just described, other than going to the National Training Center At Fort Irwin, California, if they happen to be in a heavy unit, heavy brigade, that means an armor mechanized organization and practiced it there. But practice against a Russian defensive position in California is dramatically different than what I just described described to you. Despite the formidable defense that the Ukrainians have, they've been working against it now for two months. They've learned a lot in terms of what to do and what not to do. And they've used their foot infantry at night to get into the Russian trenches and and use tactical surprise to do that. And then also to remove a lot of the mines by hand, if you can believe that, under the cover of darkness and how treacherous that is. The, The Ukrainians are handicapped somewhat because they, I, I've been told they only got some 60 something Leopard tanks are the 250 promised, and they've got less than 25% of the engineer breaching equipment, which helps them get through the minefields and the other obstacles. All that said, the Ukrainians have begun and have broken through the main defensive line of the Russians after, after two months. They've done that in the vicinity, which is obviously in the media now, Robotina, is the town they're doing that, and they're attacking on that axis, and they're attacking on two other axes to the east of that. The chirping has come 
certainly never acknowledging that the Ukrainians are having to attack without air support, without mobile air defense, and handcuffed by not having all the equipment that was promised them. That's never mentioned. But they're questioning their tactics. And the tactics they're questioning is why are the Ukrainians attacking on three axes when they should take their limited amount of forces that they have, after all the Russians outgun them and outman them, therefore concentrate your limited number of forces on one axis. And that is what they have been chirping from the sidelines about in, in the New York Times, the Financial Times, and the Washington Post. And I've looked at who the reporters are, and they are reputable reporters. So that tells me that their sources, anonymous, of course, that are providing this information are credible, it likely in terms of their rank and their years of, of experience. So they're, they're obviously taking that criticism at face value. But none of that criticism makes any sense. The Ukrainians had rightfully looked at this situation and said, what we need to do is figure out how to penetrate the Russian main defensive lines. And they've done that in a manner I've just described to you, using infantry at night, tactical surprise, etc. But then they don't want the Russians to be able to use their mobile reserves to block that penetration. So what they have concluded is that we should attack on multiple axes and pin down as much of the mobile reserves that are beyond the defensive positions as we possibly can. So one of the places they're attacking is in, is Bakhmut, which received significant amount of publicity, and particularly with the Wagner group pouring itself in there. Casualties were extraordinarily high, and it's the only offensive victory the Russians had in 2023. And it's a symbolic victory for them. It has no military value, but the Ukrainians know this. So what they have done is attack Bakhmut, not so much to capture it. If, if the Russians left, they would take it. That's not their interest. Their interest is to pin down as much forces that could be used as mobile reserves as possible. And they are achieving that. There's multiple divisions there now, the airborne divisions, mechanized divisions that are, that are at Bakhmut, making certain that they don't lose that symbolic town that they captured that has no military significance to it, but a lot of propaganda significance because how they oversold their victory at, at Bagmut. And then they're attacking a little further to the east of Robotina as well in a place called Velka Novoselka. And they made a, a penetration there in the last couple of days as well. But what this does is pin down the mobile reserves and not give the Russians the capacity to respond to one particular penetration and block it. And if you block the penetration, the offensive is over. That, that's the reality of it. Now, the history is we've always attacked on multiple axes against a prepared defense. And we did it in 1991 in Desert Storm, and we did it in 2003 in Iraqi Freedom. Now, listen, we were fighting a, a much inferior force compared to us and the Iraqis in both of those endeavors. The last time a significant offensive operation was conducted against a prepared defense like we're, the Ukrainians are dealing with here is the Battle of Metz in 1944, led by George Patton, over two months conducting that offensive operation until they were able to make 
a penetration at night by conducting a river crossing, and they were attacking on multiple axes, doing the very thing Ukrainians are doing, pinning down their reserves so they could not block the penetration. So the chirping, I, I think, I mean, I, I find that it's appalling, and the arrogance that surrounds it is very frustrating because here we've handcuffed the Ukrainians, haven't given them all they need, and now we're, we're sitting on the sidelines, not having the experience that the Ukrainians have had, and criticize them. Think of this. The Ukrainians have been fighting the Russians for 18 months. Now, this is conventional warfare. There's nobody in the United States military that has the experience that the Ukrainian generals have and that their tactical commanders have, given the 18 months of warfare they've been executing. Jack? Thank you. That really was a, a tour de force. Not that we expect any less from you. But I want to ask you a little bit of, about, and the, the chirping is, is your word from that extremely important Wall Street Journal article that you wrote laying out some of the arguments that you just made. But let's just talk for a second about the American angle. I, I don't get it. Yes, okay, I understand that there's there's some strategic ignorance on the American side. I understand that there are differences of opinion about how the Ukrainians should be conducting their offensive. Okay, I get all of that. But this was a coordinated effort in three major newspapers to crap all over the Ukrainians. What do you think the agenda was for the Biden administration here? Well, I don't know, you know, if... If the security apparatus, you know, that serves the White House is involved in this, I do know that, you know, Pentagon has been involved in it for sure. And it may have extended to military leaders, you know, who are operationally deployed uh, in the region. In other words, in NATO, I, I just don't know. I, I, I don't have that information, nor did I choose to chase it down. But I mean, let, let's face it, the Biden administration has calculated very carefully what to provide to the Ukrainians and when to provide it. And the fact that the Ukrainians do not have air power is a calculated decision on the part of the Biden administration. The fact that they don't have long-range artillery in the virtue of, of ATACMS, that's the Army Tactical Missile System, acronym ATACMS that can go out to 200 miles, the fact that they don't have mobile defense systems that can move with the attacking forces on the offense and be able to deal with those attack helicopters I mentioned, those are all calculated decisions that the Biden administration made. And think of this, they don't get M1 tanks until the fall of the year, 31 only. We have hundreds of M1 tanks available. The Marines have turned theirs in because they're not using them anymore. There's M1 tanks that we think are too old, but we haven't thrown them away. They're in a storage depot in the United States. And interesting enough, we have M1 tanks breaching equipment with brigade sets of equipment in Germany prepared to go that are maintained by contractors. And they're there in the event the United States goes to war with who? Russia. But it seemed to me that we're at war with Russia. We're fortunately only having to support the people who are doing the fighting. But we made a calculated decision not to give them that equipment, which is very close to them and in tip-top shape, and not accept 
the risk, you know, that the United States could be pulled into this war itself, I'm sure, is the, the basic reason. I don't know any agenda that the White House has got here in, in dealing with them, other than the fact that the elephant in the room from day one has been not to unduly provoke the Russians. I mean, when President Biden responding to Putin putting 70,000 soldiers on the border of Ukraine 60 days into the Biden administration in March of 21, and President Biden was asked, what do you intend to do about that? He said, I'm not planning to do anything because I don't want to provoke Putin. I think that has been a mantra of the administration right from the outset. You know, the, the World War III scenario, the war would get ex- expanded if, if we provide too much equipment too soon, or Putin would use a nuclear weapon. So there's been 18 months of incremental escalation of one more advanced system over the other with no escalatory response by Russia. I think the evidence is pretty clear that's an acceptable risk to finally give the Ukrainians everything they need as soon as possible. Many of the Europeans, after the last NATO summit, when the United States and Germany pushed back on Ukraine becoming a part of NATO as soon as possible after conflict operations are over and, and not set unrealistic conditions for them as if they were, were at peace and trying to join NATO and not have just fought a war with the very enemy that NATO exists to protect itself from, the other countries have, have come to the conclusion, and most recently Italy, France, and Spain, joining the Nordic nations, the Eastern European nations, and the UK, that all in as soon as possible is a better answer than incremental delivery of weapon systems. Why? The conclusion they all have come to is the obvious one. It helps to end the war as soon as possible. It helps to end the suffering. And it helps to end the, the long-range support for a protracted war. Yeah, Jack. So, I mean, I think the answer to Danny's question is everything you just said to distract from that, (laughs) you know, find a way to blame the Ukrainians and not blame the fact that we are forcing them to fight with one hand tied behind their backs. But, you know, this this nuclear excuse that, you know, Biden keeps talking about Armageddon and, you know, World War Three and all the rest of it. Walk us through why you don't believe that Putin would use a nuclear weapon. Well, First of all, if he did it for military purposes and in consult with his generals, given the size of Ukraine and the disposition of the forces in multiple locations, they would have to use multiple nuclear tactical weapons to do that. So that's number number one. And if if the intent is to have some military impact, and not just a political impact. And also that would endanger many of the Russian forces themselves. The, you know, where the radiation is moving is not something anybody's going to be able to control. They can control where they put the weapon, certainly, but not where the radiation moves after the effects of the blast. So, and the Russians, while they were trained in during the Cold War, like NATO forces were, to deal with the potential effects of, of nuclear weapons, the Russian military that's deployed 
is not trained for nuclear effects and does not have the equipment and the clothing to protect themselves. So I doubt seriously that the military chain of command would be an advocate for for something like that. And I think they know full well that detonating a nuclear weapon in Europe as as a result of trying to take over Ukraine would bring NATO into the war. And not in terms of deploying land forces, but NATO significantly outguns Russia, you know, five, six to one in, in air power, missiles, and the like. And we know where every Russian unit is in Ukraine. And if we just wanted to focus on the U- Ukrainian deployment and disposition of Russian forces, we would be able to destroy those forces rather handily in a relatively short period of time. I'm not speaking, you know, you know, from some hubris or arrogance here about United States military power. I'm just speaking about the cold, hard facts of it. We are providing exquisite intelligence to the Ukrainians every single day on the disposition and composition of Russian forces. So we, we know where they all are. And the Russians know this, their generals know this, and they know the impact would be devastating. The Russian military, in a sense, would be completely destroyed to include their logistical infrastructure in Crimea. And that is, and that just alone, if we didn't choose to, to go into the logistical infrastructure in Russia itself, which I think would be fair game, to be frank, and, and take that down as well. So, I mean... That kind of reality is what Putin is facing and his military generals. And I, and I think they've come to an obvious conclusion that a protracted war is in their favor. And even if they take significant casualties, if they can drag the war out over time, they think it will weaken the resolve of the United States and NATO, particularly in terms of it political will, because they've seen plenty of evidence of the lack of political will in the United States and Europe over the last number of years when it comes to the employment of forces, they think at the end of the day, you know, they could eventually get some peace deal where there's a ceasefire and they're able to rearm and re-attack under a different American administration or maybe the same one politically, but a much more weakened administration in terms of its political commitment to the war and the same with the Europeans. They see all of that on their side. Why would they ever, you know, use a nuclear weapon and bring NATO's military into the war with the obvious political support it would have as a result of using a nuclear weapon in Europe? And and I think they've come to the right, right conclusion. Putin has never been reckless. He's a thug, he's a killer, he's quite deliberate and methodical, and at times really risk-averse. And because he's he's a thug and he, and witness what he's just done recently with killing another opponent of his, it gives him this strong man, hubris that surrounds him. But at the end of the day, when you push on Putin, he doesn't come back. You know, when you push on him, he has a tendency to stand down. And, and that's kind of where, where he is on this issue. I'm absolutely convinced of it. So, Jack, one of the things that, that's interested me is this 
I would say, reasonably quiet push on the part of certain players and sometimes, you know, one part of the government to urge Ukraine towards some sort of a negotiated peace, some sort of a negotiated ceasefire. Congress is is digging into this question of whether the Biden administration is actually backing these track sort of 1.5 talks that have been going on between some former senior U.S. officials and, and the Russian government about about, we think, about just this. Do you think there's any appetite in Ukraine for a negotiated peace or ceasefire? There could be at some point, but not not now. I mean, I spent most of last night, frankly, involved with things dealing with Ukraine and, and meetings they were having, etc. And I can tell you, they are so determined to make certain that this counteroffensive is as successful as it possibly can be. And they are, they are absolutely committed to liberating their people from Russia's control and occupation, and certainly the territory that goes with it. They are focused on liberating their people, and that includes Crimea and, and their determination to do that is, is, is really quite admirable, and it, it's regrettable that this administration has not had an Oval Office speech on this war, laid out what our strategic objectives are in, in support of it, and, and it should have been a corollary to what President Zelensky is attempting to achieve here, and that is liberate his people and its land from Russian control and domination, and then, and then periodically give the American people an update on it and, and how different things would be if we had that kind of national leadership that is committed to stopping this aggression and takeover of a democratic country inside of Europe, find that not going to let that affront stand and our willingness to commit to support them. And, and do it without ever having to shed any American blood in the process. And think of what they've already achieved. I mean, they have 83% of their territory back, and we've destroyed half of Russia's combat power. And we've not shed any blood ourselves. The Ukrainians have done all the fighting. And, and to point that out to the American people, that this to date has been an incredible success story and why we need to continue to do that. From the very beginning, I believe the administration's position, somewhat unstated, but I've seen it in a couple of meetings that I've attended, it was clear that they were heading towards some kind of, some kind of negotiated deal to stop the war as soon as possible. And that was not the page the Ukrainians were on. From the outset, the Ukrainians thought they'd be able to handle the Russians. It is the United States, our intelligence services, our military as well, me and other people like me, like, not like retired guys like me matter, but we all had the same impression, you know, that Russia would dominate and eventually the Ukrainians, they would never surrender. They would fight the Russians for as long as there's Russian troops on their land and they'll fight them 
with whatever means they have in some kind of counterinsurgency. But in terms of their conventional capability, we all thought that it would be very tough for them to stand up against the Russians. Well, they've proven us all wrong here. But the administration, as opposed to changing them almost immediately, seeing the opportunity that is here to to de- defeat the Russian military in Ukraine, to set them back geopolitically, and to take away at least the immediate threat that they've been posing to uh, NATO countries, particularly those in the East, and not seeing the strategic opportunity here is stunning to me. But they have always been pushing for that negotiated settlement. And, and I think right now today, I mean, the fact that the Ukrainians don't have ATACMs, the fact that they're only going to get 31 Abrams tanks, they don't have all their breaching equipment, and the other things that I mentioned is still an indicator 18 months into the war that that position likely has not changed. This is, this is about simplistically helping Ukraine not to lose, but not giving them everything they need to really win. And I don't believe it, the, the administration has changed very much. There's been division inside the administration on this, I, I believe. And I think the National Security Advisor is, is the principal author of this position, which the, which the president has agreed. And, and I think they very quickly trumped the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense, who had different thoughts on the matter. And that has become, you know, the unstated Biden policy. And, and that is still in resonance, I think, in terms of execution, despite the Ukrainian success. So, Jack, you, you used the, the phrase earlier several times, the Ukrainians are facing a prepared defense. That prepared defense, as you described it, involves trenches, dragon's teeth, minefields. These are not advanced technologies. I mean, trenches, that's, that's World War I. <laughs> dragon's teeth, you know, those were used in, in Normandy, I think. Minefields have been there for a long time. One, why do we not have the capability to, to eliminate a minefield today in the 21st century? We've got these amazing advanced technologies. How is a, a early 20th century technology like minefield still able to defeat a counteroffensive? Two, were all the delays in providing weapons deadly to this counteroffensive in the sense that it gave the Russians time to prepare that defense? And third, does that preparation mean that the Russians have given up on taking Ukraine because they've got to cross that. Once you lay that minefield, it works both ways. They cross it and take Ukrainian territory in the future at some point? Well, if the minefields are marked as they're supposed to be, when we put minefields in, we mark them, you know, on paper, and this would be obviously on computer today, so we know where they all are and we could we could recover them, you know, without hurting our people. I don't know if the Russians, you know, have that kind of discipline here. I, I suspect not. But yes, I mean, we, the United States military and, and other milita- militaries who have con- conventional armor mechanized forces have the engineer breaching equipment to deal, you know, with these the standard practices, preparing defense in depth. So to get through minefields, we use a line charge that's fired out from a vehicle. It's kind of like a big, long debt cord of C4 that goes out 
you know, a length of a football field and, and then you detonate it and it blows up all the minefields, all the mines in that row, you know, because you've created now a path to follow and you can do that multiple times in multiple places. And then we have engineer equipment like plows on the front of our, of an armored vehicle, like a tank. It looks like a tank when you see it. And it, it helps also to create a wider path for the, for the tanks and other vehicles to follow and pushes the mines off to the side. And then obviously we have the capability to drop these bridges that we have over a tank ditch and just, they, they, they automatically are on an armored vehicle and it, it looks like a scissor on top of an armored vehicle. And then the top of the scissor opens up and flips forward and, and covers the, the trench line and it's dropped on that, on that trench line. So all of that equipment is, is something we have. And we go out to the National Training Center to practice against a Russian defense in depth. And we use all of that equipment. And, and we, but we always do it with air support. And, and we all also use a lot of smoke and obscuration, you know, so the enemy can't see us and, and pin, pin us down with direct fire and artillery fire. And I'll tell you, this sort of, as you indicated, decades old, hundred years old, the way of defending itself is, is still a formidable defense despite modern technology. And when our forces, and I've observed a lot of it as a division and corps commander, when our forces are attacking that Russian defensive position prepared by an opposing force that's obviously Americans, but doing it classically according to their doctrine, it's rare that we would ever succeed, even with local air power. So it, 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 it is very significant to deal with that. And obviously, what you want to be able to do is not have to do that, to, to figure out a way to get around it if you can or insert capability in their, in their rear to make it much easier to do so. But at the end of the day, a defense in depth with the Russians have emphasized here, they've been given the extra time to do it because of the delay in the arrival of the equipment and, and, in, and in fairness, the necessity to train the Ukrainians on that equipment, that, and that took time. I mean, it's pretty remarkable when you think about the Ukrainians and their commitment here they're, they're fighting the war every single day, and then they send thousands of their troops to Germany or Romania to train on different kinds of equipment. And then they put these organizations together with different types of equipment and practice a little bit with them and then throw these organizations into the mix, all in stride, you know, while they're in, in combat. I mean, it, it's really quite remarkable. And Whatever the expectation is on Ukrainians learning a new technology and then new, new procedures, they exceed it every single time. That's why when people are telling me, oh, well, to really produce an F-16 Ukrainian fighter pilot, that's going to take over a year or something. I mean, teaching them how to fly is one thing, but teaching them how to be a good combat pilot is another. And I mean, I, I'm saying, my God, they're already combat pilots. Now you, and, and they, so they... They pass that threshold, give them the new technology, and yes, it's challenging to deal with a Generation 4 high-tech vehicle, but these guys will master that and exceed everybody's expectation 
in doing it. So, yeah, it, I, having been close to this a little bit, obviously I have my biases here for them, but I, I am so done underestimating them in terms of what they're facing. And their perseverance and determination is really quite remarkable. And one of the things we're seeing on the other side now, and this is something we've been, we've been hoping for, is the Russian morale. And, you know, they're not, they're not properly trained. They're not particularly well-led. And they're not taken care of either in combat with the things that you would take care of, you know, hygienically with proper food and providing some comfort items for them at times, you know, to, to take the edge of combat off and the suffering and the personal hardship. They, they, don't, they don't get any of that. And so that, I, I think that will be a, a major issue that's going to help the Ukrainians. And we're seeing some manifestation of that as we speak. Jack, of that mind-clearing technology and support that you described, are we giving any of that to the Ukrainians? What are they missing? Well, what I've been told, I mean, I, I, I don't, I haven't verified this because I don't have the way to verify, but I've been told they got less than 25% of what they expected to get. And that engineer breaching equipment is so critical to what they're doing. So what, what they've had to do is a form of maneuver that you see as tanks and mechanized vehicles moving forward. That's obviously a form of maneuver. But another form of maneuver against uh, a defense in depth is what we refer to as infiltration. So they are taking foot infantry. They probably bring them up in vehicles, but then drop them off in front of those defenses. And they infiltrate this foot infantry at night, attempting to, one, have the concealment of night and not be detected, and two, achieve some tactical surprise if they're able to get to those trench lines without getting blown up themselves in the minefields. And obviously they're doing, as they're moving through what they believe is a minefield, then they're moving through that very slowly with mine, hand and manual mine detectors in front of the movement, hoping that they will not be detected. And the kind of bravery that that takes is pretty significant. And they've had some real success for it. And this is the Ukrainians adapting to the situation. And, and they're continuing to do that, you know, as we speak. And then when they get a penetration and they're able to take that trench line down, then they're able to, to move some of their armor and mechanized forces up as well. What, what success will look like if they're able to break the first echelon, second echelon defenses, the second echelon should not be as formidable as the first. They've gotten through the first in two places. And the Russians cannot move up mobile reserves of any consequence, and we don't think they can, then the Ukrainians would be able to, a military term we use, exploit the penetration, which means bring in uncommitted forces, mechanized forces now that can move at some speed and achieve some depth behind the defensive positions, which would then force the collapse of the defensive positions. The second thing that's going on, and we have a tendency to focus so much on what we're, what we're describing here is the close fight. That is Ukraine's offense against this prepared defense. But there's a deep fight that's going on that's as critical, and that is Ukrainians using drones, HIMARS, cruise missile systems to take down the Ukrainians' logistical infrastructure 
its bases, its depots for munition and fuel. And they're doing that in the southern part of Ukraine, and they're doing it also in Crimea. And you see them reaching out actually to do some of it in Russia itself. And that is very important. It, it helped them to be successful in the Kharkiv offensive they ran in September and also in the Hershon offensive that they ran in June, which was also successful. So the close fight is what we focus on, but that deep fight is very important to weaken the command and control system and the logistical infrastructure that's supporting the close fight. And you put two of those together and that is what the Ukrainians are counting on to have real operational success. So Jack, exit question from me, and you are, as usual, being super generous with your time. Thank you. You've talked really actually movingly about the resolve and the courage and the fortitude of the Ukrainian forces. And obviously, we agree with you wholeheartedly. What I've been a little less proud of is the resolve and fortitude and courage of conservatives and the Republican Party in the United States. And there's this growing divide that we see. It was on full display at the Republican debate last week. It is on full display in the divide between conservative think tanks in Washington, one of which has decided that Ukraine needs to lose. What do you what what's the right argument here? What's going on? What has happened in your view to to a party that used to be committed to American national security and global leadership? Yeah, well, you know, I try to stay out of the politics, but I won't I won't run from the issue. I mean, I, I'm 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 astounded by it, to be quite frank, because this is a political party that has been very supportive of having a strong defense. And, and recognizing and, and also supporting strong leadership, American leadership in the world. You know, I think everyone has taken solace by the fact that America's post-World War II global leadership and its strong military has helped to achieve a degree of stability in the world and avoiding the catastrophe of, of World War II. And as a result of that, the global economy has grown, countries have benefited from it, and certainly the United States in terms of our prosperity and our quality of life has benefited from it, from those two factors, Americans' leadership and accepting a responsible role in the world to help provide stability, and, and also the economic benefit that has accrued to the world writ large as a result of it, and, and what it's done for the United States and our people. They're all connected. And I'm astounded that we would walk away from something like that and say, well, we don't really need to play that serious and larger role in the world out there. It, it, it's so naive. It, it's stunning because we, we have never had a challenge that we're facing today since World War II, where, where we have the aggression of Russia already committed to a war in Europe, and we have China threatening another one. And that's, that's what we were facing in World War II, war in the Pacific and war in, in, in Europe. But today, with much more sophisticated weapons and with, with China, who has advanced technology that we don't have and is spending money on a pro rata basis that exceeds anything we're doing, is the most rapidly growing military in the world. And we have a, a leader that's threatening the use of it. It's stunning to me that we don't connect 
the dots and, and how these authoritarian regimes perceive that there's advantage here to be had with the United States and like-minded democracy. So you have China, Russia, Iran, all seeking to take advantage in their respective theaters. Middle East, Iran, dominated control. Russia, rebuild the Russian empire in Putin's image. China, dominated and control their region. And China having the strategic objective of being an emerging superpower, as we've seen in history, desiring to replace the United States as the world's global leader. Usually, most of the time, that leads to war. So our principal objective would be to prevent the calamity that could be on the horizon as a result of major war in multiple theaters facing the United States once again, at least in two theaters, for sure. That should be our major objective. And taking care of the border at home only and solving other domestic issues that we have in the United States only and walking away from our responsibilities to deal with the world as it is today actually invites danger to the United States and threatens the security of the American people. And this is a, from a political party that espoused that as one of its foundations. And it seems to be me that they're walking away from Ronald Reagan as well, you know, who, who believed that if you want to prevent a war, you better be prepared to fight one. And, and, and that is not just about your, the will that you're expressing. That's about real military capability deployed so your adversary will see it and practice and do it in conjunction with allies and partners. So there's a clear message that we intend to be there if you choose to push this aggression. And that means you're forward deployed and you're engaged with allies and partners in the theater not just protecting your border at home. My God, I mean, the United States of America, if we had the right administration, can't control our border and also help to establish peace and stability in the world with forward presence, the United States military, and, and, and our values and an economy that's out there doing what we should do in terms of training with the world writ large. We, we, we can't do all of that. I, I, I think we can. And, and I think it's somewhat shameful that people are, are walking away from that. It, it just posits more danger and more risk for the American people and invites more aggression. When Putin look at that, when they hear it, when she looks at it and hears it, doesn't that provide him more incentive if there's a lack of political will growing in the United States to move up his agenda to deal with Taiwan? I, I think it's got to be in his calculus someplace. Amen. So, Jack, my exit question, you, you, we could do a whole podcast with you on the deficits of grand strategy in the, both the Democratic and Republican Party. But I want to close with a question on the deficits in military strategy. So you brought up China. The U.S. military planners, we completely overestimated the Russian military threat and Ukraine's ability to defend itself. They're giving by your analysis today and in the Wall Street Journal, we're giving the Ukrainians the wrong military advice on how to fight them now. What does this, you know, and then chirping from the sidelines, what does this say about our ability to defend Taiwan or deter yeah. China and Taiwan? If, we're, if we got Ukraine so wrong and are still get, our military strategists are getting Ukraine so wrong and giving the Ukrainians bad advice on how to fight the Russians, 
should we be worried about our ability to fight the Chinese? Oh, I, th- I definitely think we should. And, and, you know, in the war games that have been played over the last 10 or so years, we're, we're challenged to win in those war games. And indeed, we lose in, in most of them, those war games. And the war games, you know, they're, they're not ends in themselves. I mean, I, I look at them, the value I take from them is, is what are our vulnerabilities and what are our strengths and the same for the enemy? And then what, what do we need to do in terms of changing those capabilities? That's where I put my emphasis on it. But nonetheless, I mean, it, it, it certainly posits that we have a significant challenge here growing with the Chinese military. Look, so the pe- people listening understand the United States as a military superpower is number one in the world today. We can project power any place in the world. Over We have over 300 military bases. We have power projection capability that no other country in the world has. And the American people have seen that on display in the past. But here's the problem. When we get within 1,000, 1,500 miles of China, that advantage switches to China because it is their backyard. And they have, they have organized a military to deny the United States military coming to the assistance of Taiwan. And so if our surface ships come within range of their missiles, they will swarm on those surface ships and destroy them in a manner that we haven't seen in maritime warfare since World War II. It actually would exceed the destruction that we witnessed in, in World War II when maritime warfare existed on a high scale. The destruction of aircraft, air power, attempting to penetrate Chinese airspace would be significant. They have a technology advantage of over us in terms of hypersonic missiles. They also have an advantage geographically over us. So they would, they could impact our maritime capability. They impact our air power capability. And we have existing bases in the region if the kinetic war takes place, they'll go after those bases with long-range missiles almost immediately and, and destroy the infrastructure of that base and deny that base from from the United States or our allies being able to use that base to reinforce the theater with reserves and others who have to deploy. And you have to understand, I mean, Los Angeles, the southern western coast of the United States is two weeks from the war zone. Sailing. That's, we are absolutely a, an ocean away from getting most of our forces into the region. So the, how we are at the beginning says everything. And here's my problem with this. The operational art on how to fight that war, we don't practice that with our allies and with Taiwan. We don't visit Taiwan with senior military leaders and help to organize their military. Now we've begun to bring some of them out to the Indo-Pacific region, you know, in Hawaii. And that's a good thing. We're starting to do a little bit more of that. But it's been appalling that we haven't organized ourselves. I mean, what we convinced the Soviet Union of during the Cold War, we were forward deployed with forces across the border and we practiced continuously the war fight we would do against the Russians. We deployed every two years multiple divisions to Europe. We called it Reforger, where we were bringing reinforcements, thus the name Reforger, to Europe. And the Russians saw all of that, and they came to the conclusion, well, even though we outman and outgun 
NATO forces led by the United States, if we get in a fight with them, the outcome is not predictable, and therefore the cost is too great. So they never took the step, even though they wanted to, and even though they outnumbered us and outgunned us. That is the conclusion that we want President Xi's military generals to come to, but that's not where they are right now. They believe they can, they, they, they can win this thing. And that makes no sense. They're playing the same war games we're playing and getting the same results. So we have to deploy more capability. I give credit to the administration that a political and military alliances informally that we're building in the region through Australia, Japan, United States and India, the Quad, through what you just saw with South Korea and Japan. We have bilateral arrangements with each of them, but the fact that United States, South Korea, and Japan would work together in a political and military alliance for the first time. That's a good thing. Credit the administration for that. Credit the administration for moving rotational forces into Australia and for getting uh, more bases from the Philippines. But there's so much more that we have to do in terms of what you said, Mark, a military strategy, operational concepts, bringing everybody together and practice this. And don't worry about if the Chinese feel that we're provoking them or, or it, stop self-deterring our language. We have the right to practice for war and help to train our allies in the region when we have a leader of the most rapid-growing military in the world is threatening its very use and saying to his, to his military, be prepared to take Taiwan in 2027 and the rhetoric that he's using as we speak in the last few weeks is all about preparing his country for that war. And we have every right to speak about this and what we're doing to stop his aggression. It's he that's destabilizing the region, and we've got to move rapidly to catch up in terms of our military capability. I think in the region we are military vulnerable. And it's been there for some time, and we're not moving fast enough to fix it. Jack, thank you, as always. You know, a masterclass in education, but also just, you know, for your conviction. We are always grateful. Always great talking to you guys and your audience. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. So I asked Jack about this in our interview, Mark, and I mentioned it in our intro, but I... As much as we criticize, and deservedly so, the Biden administration and their and their cabinet for failing to do enough to support Ukraine, I sat there and watched the Republican debate, and I got to say, I was not too impressed with the front runners. Between Donald Trump, who thinks he could end the war in 24 hours, I don't know on what terms he thinks he would end that war, maybe from jail, and DeSantis, who has been one of the biggest disappointments I've seen in a long time on this question. What did you think? What about the Republican field? What's going on? Well, I was absolutely just shocked at the utter stupidity of, of Vivek Ramaswamy on this debate. I thought Nikki Haley absolutely eviscerated him. I think I, mean, I think she had the best debate performance of anybody in that debate. But, you know, this hey, just as, a, as an asterisk there on Nikki Haley, just, you know, when everybody says the American people aren't behind us, she's the one who got the biggest bounce out of that debate. Yeah. She is the one who gained the most points in those stupid national polls they love to do. Yeah, go back to what you were saying. 
Sure, thank you. So, I mean, but you know, Vivek was was, was terrible. He has an essay on the American conservative, which I would which I would recommend everybody go out and read, just so you can understand what happens when somebody goes out and publishes their freshman foreign policy paper in a national magazine and just makes a complete ass of themselves. His strategy for Ukraine is: I'm going to promise Russia that we will stop arming Ukraine, that we will give them territory in exchange for their ending their military alliance with China and teaming up with us against China. And I will do a reverse of the Cold War where we'll start the Sino-Soviet conflict, except with the Russians on our side. And it's just like, dude, the dumbest, <laughs> number, number one, not actually, not actually a formal foreign policy alliance. There's no like NATO or Warsaw Pact that they can withdraw from. Two, they were, you know, and we're, he says we're pushing Russia and China together. It's like, dude, she met with Putin 40 times before the Ukraine war started. They have been together since the beginning of this, long before Ukraine became an issue. You're not going to separate them. That's like, it's like you know, it, it, that's fantasy land. He worries me because he seems to be gaining some traction in conservative circles, even though he's not going to be the nominee. That's a, that's a long-term problem with that. He's just the poor man's Donald Trump, Mark. I have no, I have no doubt. I Nobody have no would. doubt that he's not going to prevail. Yes, I, I agree with that, but he's young and he's got a future. So he's somebody that we got to keep an eye on because his foreign policy views are not just wrong, they're dangerously stupid. So that's Vivek. And I think Nikki Haley just absolutely eviscerated him in the debate. But, you know, here's the thing. I'm not going to stop beating up on Biden because here's why. He makes it possible for for this conservative slippage on Ukraine because, again, he ties the hands of the Ukrainians in the fight. He doesn't have a strategy for victory. And then he says, we'll fight as long as it takes. And that makes an opening for people like Vivek and others. And he doesn't make a case for why it's in America's interests, like that, which I tried to do in the Washington Post to make an America first case for why helping Ukraine is in our interest. But the president hasn't done that. And so what does that do? That creates an opportunity for the Viveks and the, of the world to come in and say, it's not in our interests. We don't worry. We can't win. And people understandably look and say, yeah, Biden's incompetent. He can't complete a sentence. He walks like you're not. 90-year-old grandfather and hangs out on the beach all day. Is this the guy that we should back in an international conflict with Vladimir Putin? So he he's creating the openings for people to do that. That doesn't absolve the idiots, but it but it, it, but, it, but, it, but, it but it does absolve to some extent average Americans who are not sitting here watching this all day long and are wondering what the hell is going on in, in Ukraine and why should we should be supporting them. Most people are, are not focused on foreign policy. They're focused on trying to make ends meet in the Biden economy where inflation is at 40-year highs and gas prices are $4. And they're not focused on Ukraine and they want to understand why it's in our interest. And so nobody's explaining it to them. And here's a perfect, another perfect example of it. You know, why, why are we more concerned about the border of Ukraine than the borders of our, than our borders? And why are we spending money in Ukraine when we're not helping the people in, in Hawaii. And so what does the Biden administration do? They go to Congress and, and they want to link aid to Ukraine to disaster relief. It's like, dude, it's like you're creating T-ball for the isolationists. You're throwing soft pitch out to the isolationists and giving them easy balls to hit. And of course they're hitting them and they're making progress on it because this administration keeps teeing them up. No, I know. Look, I mean, it is... It's a clown show at the White House, and you know the president is look is covering you know is covering up. Everybody looks at him and thinks he's doddering and incompetent. But there's some bad people behind him, and you know while I understand that 
they're afraid to have Biden go out and give a speech because they're afraid to have Biden go out and give a speech. They shouldn't be afraid to have their Secretary of Defense go out and give a speech, and yet he hasn't. They shouldn't be afraid to have their Secretary of State go out and give a speech, and yet he hasn't. So the Republican candidates who are so freaking irresponsible, and the fact that, you know, I look at Mitch McConnell, and yeah, Mitch McConnell is, is, is obviously not doing well, and, and it, it breaks my heart for one simple reason. He is the kind of adult leadership that the Republican Party needs and that we saw on that stage from Mike Pence and from Nikki Haley and the rest of them freaking sucked. It's just terrible. I mean, what have we done to deserve this? <laughs> well, here's the thing. So let's talk about the front runners. And, and I use front runner with an asterisk next to it when it comes to DeSantis. DeSantis basically just doesn't want to talk about this. He doesn't want this to be the ground that he fights on. I think his instincts are not great on this, but if there's in a DeSantis administration, he's going to staff it with smart people who are going to do the right thing on Ukraine. I don't think we're in danger of DeSantis abandoning Ukraine if he became president. Trump is complicated. You know, it's interesting. He's done a few interviews where he's praised Zelensky. He says that Zelensky's a good guy because he said my perfect phone call was perfect. And, you know, Zelensky may have actually saved Ukraine by his handling of the first impeachment inquiry. But, you know, he says Zelensky's a good guy. He said our phone call was perfect. I like him. And he said, I'm going to go to Putin and I'm going to say, you cut a deal. And if you don't, I'm going to double aid to Ukraine. What I learned from the four years of the Trump administration is that there is a huge chasm between what Trump says about Russia and what Trump does when it comes to Russia. He authorized the U.S. military to kill about 200 Wagner guys in Syria. He launched a cyber attack on the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg. This is the president who took out Qasem Soleimani. In practice, and now I I have the same worry you do, which is a lot of good people will not join a second Trump administration. And that's a topic for another podcast. As they say, we'll jump off that bridge when we get to it. I'm not dead certain that the Trump administration would suddenly turn around. It's not a, you can't caricature it. It's not that simple. We don't know what Trump would do on Ukraine. It worries me, but I'm not certain that he's, he's dug in with the anti-Ukraine element of the, of the GOP. As usual, folks, if you have questions, comments, don't hesitate to share. We hope you had a wonderful summer. Thank you all for the really, really nice notes that you sent to us about our book series. I think that was a great idea, and I'm really, really glad that we did it. So take care and see you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 